Good afternoon, Seven Investors, and welcome to the Friday edition of Seven Investing Now. My name, of course, is Daniel Brooks Klein, and I am joining you from a hotel room here in uh, the land of a thousand Olive Gardens. That would, of course, be Orlando, Florida. Simon Erickson is joining me on the program today from his home in Houston, Texas. Simon, how is your your power grid holding up? Are you having rolling blackouts? Uh, are, are you doing this show on like a crank internet? What is going on there in Houston, Texas? It is true, Dad. It's been interesting. Sometimes the lights have flickered on and off. Not even kidding. It kind of feel like a creepy, scary movie out here at times, but we're getting by. So far, so good today. I've told this story before, and it was not uh, on my trip to visit you in Houston, Texas. It was many years ago. I was in Houston, Texas, and when I checked in, they told me, don't leave the hotel if it's not by car. I don't know where this high, I was thinking a Hyatt. It wasn't like a not nice hotel, but apparently it was in a not nice neighborhood. So I spent yesterday at Disney's Hollywood Studios and it was, uh, it was notable because it was normal. You're not wearing a mask at Disney. There's no more temperature checks. There's no more distancing markers. It was a, it was a little bit uh, strange feeling. The, the cast or the employees are still wearing masks. Uh, but Simon, it really felt like full normalcy with the exception of that most of your food ordering is done on the phone. Even some of the walk-up stands, uh, like the milk stand in Star Wars land, which is not good, by the way. Everyone who gets tempted for this, this is not butterbeer at Universal. This is not something you have to have. It's, it should be vanilla and it's fruity. Uh, but that said, we did the Millennium Falcon. It is just amazing. I don't, I don't, your, your family is a, a little, uh, your daughter's a little young, but a few years from now, Simon, Hollywood Studios is the place to go. Have you been to Disney World? In the- I have. I'm wondering, I'm curious, is it shorter lines now, Dan? Or do you get all the benefits of Disney World having to wait for an hour for every line? So, no, it's very crowded uh, mm-hmm. because while they're not clear on capacity, they haven't opened up things like the Indiana Jones stunt show or other things that just like suck a thousand people out of the park. Uh, and that's not because of, of safety. That's because it takes time to tool those shows back up and get the performers back in and get. So I would expect as capacity rises, you're going to see more restaurants come back online. You're going to see those shows open. You're going to see the more like high capacity theater things like Hall of Presidents at, at Magic Kingdom is closed, probably because they're adding Biden in. Um, so as those things open up, I think you're going to see normal crowds. But I will say as crowded as it was, like Millennium Falcon, we did single rider line. So it was probably 20 minutes to, to get in. Uh, we did the new Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, uh, which is a you know a cute kid's ride. That was about an hour wait, but it's an hour wait outside in the hot sun. Mm. Which is very, very unpleasant. But our topic today. I have my Mickey mug for you today, Dan, in your <laughs> honor of Disney World. It's my Mickey coffee mug. I, I'm drinking a $6 hotel bottle of water. So, <laughs> gotcha. Uh, so we, we are going... But we are going to be talking about identity. That's the lead topic. Then I'm going to be joined later in the show uh, by our very own Anirban Mahante. We're going to talk about Roku uh, and the possibility, the crazy possibility, uh, that Comcast might try to buy Roku or that Comcast might team up with, uh, with Viacom CBS. And our, our friend Alan Sokolov shares with us a comment here if you, want to, if you want to pull it up here. Can't wait to hear your guys' thoughts. Uh, my opinions. I just don't think they would able to pay the steep prices. Yeah, I think yeah. we're going to talk about that. But Roku is about 20% of the market cap of Comcast. And Comcast has debt. They have infrastructure expense. If I'm Roku, I'm only selling if the money is crazy. It's like, Simon, like we would say, well, seven investing's not for sale. But if Mark Cuban calls you up and offers a <laughs> billion dollars, well, then all of a sudden we're, uh, 
you know, we're eight horse we're racing. We're moving to Disney World. Yeah, yeah we're, we're, we're eight horse racing and we're in Saratoga, you know, you know, forecasting the races or whatever it might be. And, you know, as the old million dollar man says, everybody has a price. And I think that might be true for Roku. But that is going to be later in the show. So as we get into identity here, Simon, you wanted me to ask you about a bad relationship you have. I, I am, Dan, and I'm so glad that, that you're here and that Sam is here and everybody on the call is able to listen as I just get this off my chest that I'm just in a really bad relationship right now. And that's my relationship with the Internet. You know, and it's not me. It's you. It's just it's too invasive. You know, you know everything about me. You know all of my interests. Uh, you know what I like to do and where I go. And then you go off and you tell everybody about that. And then they try to sell me things. You know, I go to the grocery store the other day, Dan, and I was just going and picking up eggs. And somebody just came up to me out of nowhere and said, hey, do you want to buy a new guitar from me? I said, no, I want to be doing my grocery shopping. I want to be doing my eggs. Get out of here. I go down to the next aisle. I go to buy some bread. And somebody up comes up to me and says, hey, can you buy a hot tub from me? I want to sell you a hot tub. I said, guys, I'm just trying to do my grocery shopping. Just leave me alone. I don't want to deal with you trying to sell me hot tubs and guitars. Yes, I'm interested in those things. Now's not the right time. It, it, it is a problem, and we're going to talk about it's the problem. It's the problem with Here's what happened to me, and I've shared this story on air before. My wife was looking up bed frames. We needed a new bed frame for our guest room, and we discussed it, and she bought one. So the transaction was done, and then for weeks, all I saw was ads for bed frames. This is a bad business tactic because the reality is something like a bed frame, once you buy it, you're not going to be like, hey, I need six more bed frames. Like, like that, that doesn't make any sense. Now, I booked uh, another hotel room here in Orlando because our vacation place is all booked up. And all I see on my social media is ads for more hotel rooms. Again, I booked the hotel room. If you could be snoopy enough to know that that's what I'm looking for, you should also be snoopy enough to figure out that it's already done. But Simon, some of this is changing. So I have the latest Apple iOS. And when I logged in to, to my social media, to Facebook and Twitter, it asked me, did I want to allow it to track ads and very to track my movement? And very begrudgingly, I said yes, because both of those sites serve up local businesses. And, and West Palm Beach is a very big city. So physically, geographically, it's very spread out. So there might be a new restaurant six or seven miles from me that I would never drive by. So I want Facebook to be telling me, hey, wow, there's a coffee shop you might want to go to a restaurant. Uh, but how is our how do they track us now? And how is that changing going forward? Well, this is the problem with the Internet, right? The relationship that I have with the Internet right now is, is heavily slanted to social media sites and search engines, right? So Google has got third-party tracking cookies, which kind of track your web behavior. They've got their own Google Chrome, their own browser that kind of says, where, where are you going and what are you doing across the Internet? And then I'm going to place you things that might be of interest to you. And I put all my information in things like, like, like Facebook, like my social media uh, platforms are, are mining data from people. And, and this is really not something we're paying a lot of attention to. The problem with the internet today and the targeted advertising that associates with that is that it's not on our own terms. It's just we have profiles, we have web behavior, that's all being scooped up into third-party cookies or being mined for targeted advertising. And this is causing these backlashes that we're seeing with consumer data privacy. We're saying, whoa, not okay, I want to know how this is being used out there. I want to know what exactly what you're tracking. And I want to make sure I'm okay with all that in the first place. And so we've seen this. You know, we're seeing six bills in Congress right now, Dan, that would be uh, related to limiting big tech's power. I mean, it's kind of things like this are becoming really, really prevalent. We're talking about them all the time. 
But at the fundamental point of this is that you're seeing those big tech companies making the changes themselves because they don't want to lose space with their consumers. Google announced just yesterday, um, well, far before yesterday, that it's going to be phasing out third-party cookies. It's trying to develop new ways to track behavior on federated learning, um, a project they're calling Flocks, like a flock of seagulls. But the idea would be replace the technology that's right now a little too invasive. It's a little bit too individual. Bring it up to a higher level and track groups of people rather than individuals in what they're doing and see if you can make that a new way that's just as effective for advertisers to get through to people. They're going to run so far away from their existing technology to bring the flock of seagulls reference back in. I think I'm getting that reference correct. Simon, in my opinion, there, there's a whole bunch of, of you know, potential bills in Congress. And we've talked about, we've done shows about whether they could pass and what might happen in the, the sort of weird bipartisan support. But I think the reality is this is going to be industry driven. And I actually do think Apple is sort of forcing these things to happen. So we're going to talk about how to play this as investors later. But do you think the Facebooks, the Twitters, the Googles of the world recognize that they have to move to an opt-in basis? And that might not work as well, but it feels a lot less crummy. I mean, you, you, you made the, the grocery shopping analogy, but like, I'm okay with sharing the data with Facebook that I've ordered coffee through Facebook and I'm good with it then giving me other ads for coffee. Because as you know, I'm a sucker and I have like 19 coffee makers. So clearly past patterns have shown I'm going to fall for that advertising. Uh, but if I opt in, I think that's great. If they do it, I think it's troubling and it's a little strange it's gone on this long. Do you think we're, we're at that precipice of change? Yes, this is it's subtle, but it's important when you opt in to receive advertisements for things. This is actually the whole idea of what Europe was trying to do with their privacy regulations of making sure that you were aware that there were cookies. But cookies is not the right answer for this. We need a new technology for it. But the, the, the whole behavior we're trying to train here is to say, OK, if I'm going to a site, um, I would like to opt in to see this content, maybe exclusive, exclusive premium content in exchange for letting you know it's okay for you to send me targeted advertisements related to this. And this is a really big deal, Dan, because it used to be just these walled gardens, right? You would go on Google, and now you're within the Google ecosystem, and everything, all your data belongs to Google, right? You go onto Facebook, you'd start seeing stuff on Google, and now Facebook knows everything about you, and they can mine anything in your profile. This is a little bit more bite-sized, right? If we're going and we're learning about Disney World because we want to go to Disney World right now, yes, it's probably okay with us to see an, an advertisement or a promotion for Disney World. If we're going to a music site and we say, hey, we want to learn more about this music, is it okay if we show you some other music promotions? Yes, this is on my terms. If I'm in the bread aisle, you can show me a coupon for a dollar off Mrs. Baird's bread. It's just that this data mining is being replaced by more individual uh, self-selecting, self-opting in to things that are published on websites. And so identity is going to be the technology that's very important, not only to recognize who I am, but also make sure that that's coordinated with the advertisers who still want to place those ads in front of prospective buyers. Yeah, a lot of this is about advertising as content. We're going to, again, we'll get to the investment place here in a minute or two. But if I'm shopping for a new cell phone, or as I am right now, I am shopping for new couches. We, we need to replace the couches in our vacation home, uh, and we need to do it with couches that are both comfortable and durable, two things that don't go together. Uh, so you can't buy leather because any person with a pen can ruin your leather couch. You need something that doesn't stain because renters are going to be sloshing around the wine glass and kids are going to be putting their dirty feet. It is a really tough thing. So I am totally happy if Facebook serves me ads for couches so I can research, so I can figure it out. 
uh, I like certain types of music and I follow a bunch of different people on Facebook and it shows me other groups I might want to be in. And sometimes those groups are helpful. I'm opting in for all of that, but that's the option. I am opting in. We, of course, would like your questions and comments. So we're not going to have a ton of time on this show to take them, but we'll happily sneak some in, in and around the interview and things like that. Simon, before we get to some of the more uh, diverse plays here, is this going to hurt Google, Facebook, and, and to a lesser extent, Twitter? They're going to be fine, Dan. I, I don't want to say this is the downfall of Google and Facebook because it's certainly not. They're going to adapt. They know they have a lot to, to lose if, if they screw this up. And so they want to stay far ahead of this $450 billion annual digital ad market. Um, but, but I also think that we're starting to see a little bit of change outside of those walled gardens where Facebook and Google controls the entire experience and all of your data. And there's this new ad tech platform ecosystem that's being built out advertising technology that could place publishers directly in, in line with, with the advertising agencies, right? So you don't have to use Google AdSense if you want to learn about the people that are on those partner sites. You could actually uh, find the right person directly through the publishers. And so this is things like you're seeing the trade desk kind of uh, build the tools like Universal ID 2.0. That's something that can identify people that's in a way that's less invasive than cookies, but it could still make sure the information is there so the ads are relevant. Uh, we're seeing, you know, we've kind of seen the shift uh, from handshake agreements of when advertisements were going to be placed on television stations to the internet where it was real-time bidding to mobile phones. Now we're seeing connected TVs. Everything is internet connected. iPads, you know, everything is internet connected now, Dan. There's a lot of information that's out there. Uh, we just need to make sure that we're doing this in a way that consumers are okay with but it's still relevant because this is still an ROI industry that really matters for advertisers to get the best bang for their buck. Yeah. I think that to answer your question, Google and Facebook are going to be okay. I have a lot of an interest though in the ecosystem that's building outside of those walled gardens. Yeah, and we are gonna talk all about that momentarily. I just wanna take one question from uh, our friend Max Lucas here. Uh, if you wanna pull that up, Sam Bailey. Uh, do you think these changes in advertising make platforms like Pinterest more attractive? Simon, I'll let you weigh in here because I think you like Pinterest more than I do. I don't have a strong opinion on, on Pinterest, interestingly, but, but I do think that, you know, when you look at the largest publishers out there, the news corps, right, who owns Wall Street Journal, Barron's, a whole bunch of that kind of thing. Like there's kind of more of a shift to um, different types of content, different, more individualized, more entertaining, more, more fun types of content. Uh, we're hearing Zynga described a lot as a publisher. Right. Zynga makes video games. Right. Right. This is not one that you think of like Wall Street Journal, same conversation, but it could be individualized content in forms of a game. Activision Blizzard, a publisher of video games, you know, things like like Twitch, you know, things like this. Uh, you get in, you give them a lot of information. You spend a lot of time on those platforms. What can they give you in exchange for that time without charging you for access to those platforms? And that's, that's more individual than just saying, okay, we're going to blast this many ads on this many impressions on the Wall Street Journal this week. It could be, hey, what game is Dan Klein pay, playing on Zynga this week? Uh, if you'd like to get exclusive access to this new game we just created, opt in and we're going to have some ads on the side. Are you okay with that? I'm, of course, playing Farmville, and it's very, very lonely. It's, I joked I was the last guy to still play Pokemon Go, but uh, there probably are like eight people. There's probably millions of people still playing Farmville, but it's much smaller than it used to be. I think all of this is about the transaction. So uh, I'll, t I'll talk about it very broadly. Last night, I watched uh, a show on the CW. I watched one of the, uh, the Arrow Universe shows. Maybe it was Batwoman. I don't remember. I, I, one of those shows. And you understand. They show you in little blocks on the timeline 
that to watch it for free on the CW app, you are going to get commercials. Now, is that targeted? Do I wish I could check off, hey, here are some commercial things I'm interested in, show me these ads, instead of getting the same ad about the guy who wrecked his car, but his family's still alive. That made me cry the first time I saw it, but not so much the 8,000th time I've saw it. So I think this can get a lot better. And Simon, there's a lot of technology that's working on that. Why don't you talk about some of the investing angles here? Because these are companies uh, that I think a lot of us are really excited about. Absolutely. You know, the first ones that we've been talking about here have been kind of those uh, those ad tech platforms. You know, I'm, I'm very interested in companies like Pubmatic. Uh, that's P-U-B-M is the ticker for that one. Magnite, M-G-N-I is the ticker for that one. I mean, these are the kind of the, uh, the, the this is the ecosystem that's building out on the publisher side. We call it a supply side platform, if you will, of saying, hey, if you've always worked with Google or you've always worked with uh, with AdSense, what is another way that, that if you want to respond to these consumer privacy concerns that are out there and make sure that you're addressing them and people like going to your website, here's some other options you might have available for you. So that's one angle. The other angle is uh, is identity. You know, we kind of framed this discussion around identity, but there are um, tech options that identify you as a as a person. We can do that through tracking behavior. Uh, like Google's been doing with third-party cookies so far, but where you could also do things that are more of a sign-in. You know, so uh, you you log into something like an Okta. It does single sign-on. It recognizes you. It releases some information on a need-to-know basis for the platform, for the app, for the subscription you're using, and then it and then it recognizes you and feeds content. I mean, this is something that that Netflix did really really well a decade and a half ago. Was saying, okay. Simon, who's who's logging into Netflix? Oh, yeah, it's you, Simon. Oh, hey, I've got some recommendations based on the, the shows that you just watched. Here's some other stuff we think you might like. That, that's that's based on identity, and you have to understand who it is that's logging in in the first place. That's how we learned our Netflix had been hijacked. Uh, someone actually went in and changed my password, but I didn't notice because they didn't log us out. And all of a sudden, my recommendations started being like 50% in Spanish and things we've never <laughs> watched. And then I went to check into my settings and realized the email address wasn't me. Uh, and actually, Netflix was great about it. It was really easy to call and fix it. Simon, is it fair to say we're in the early innings of this? So we've both used Okta. And Okta is a great company. I, I've been on with some of their execs uh, during interviews and things like that. I really like the product. But I think it's pretty clumsy. I think two-factor authentication is not going to be how we do it. I know my Apple Watch, which the battery is dead on at the moment, uh, will unlock my Mac. Are we moving more towards where we're like wearing some sort of identity key or we have the like science fiction eyeball recognition or whatever it is? Because I can't tell you how many times I got on a plane and then couldn't log into uh, the content management system or, or my email or whatever it is because I had no ability to get that text message. Uh, so I, I, am I right that, that the octaves of the world have a long, long way to go? It, it, it's... You've you've brushed on one of my favorite topics as an investor, Dan, which is how how do things evolve over time and how easy is it for existing companies to innovate when they change, right? I was just going through it. I found in my closet the other day, I have an RSA token that was the two-factor authentication that I used to, to log into my VPN back in the day, right? It would change the code every couple of seconds, right? And, you know, then you type the one that to get into the, you know, behind the firewall and uh, into the networks. And that used to be like the go-to way that you would you would log into to networks and to sites. And you know now that's kind of moved online. Maybe there's going to be futuristic ways that we do that. Uh, you don't want to, if you're an organization that has built uh, IP around that thing, you don't want to just completely overhaul everything, right? You don't just want to say, hey, we've we've made so much money and all of our cash is coming from the way we're doing things. 
But on the other hand, no one's coding with Fortran anymore, right? The world changes. It evolves. There are different programming languages. There are different technologies. Uh, some companies do a really, really good job of, of taking their existing cash flows and profits and then kind of disrupting themselves in a way that they can evolve and they can innovate as the market changes without completely starting from scratch and saying, hey, we're laying off 80% of our workforce. But to your, to your point, I think that identity does continue to change. I think there are new standards around an open internet that are taking place right now. I think the two-factor authentication is going to continue. I think that zero trust, which we didn't even talk about that yet, but maybe on a future program, we talk about how important that is for cybersecurity right now. There's a lot of pieces falling to place in this new puzzle that is identity of the internet. I am amazed at how often pretty secure things like banks still ask for your mother's maiden name as a password. Now I'll tell you, I don't use my mother's maiden name. I have something else I use there because my name is Daniel Brooks Klein. And that <laughs> is my mother's maiden name. It's not a secret. I say we got you, Dan. We know now. <laughs> I say it at the beginning of every show. So we're going to wrap up with Simon in a minute here, but I do actually have one last question to ask here. Uh, and then we're going to talk a little bit about subscribing to 7investing. Uh, and then we're going to have a big interview with Anurban Mahante about uh, these potential uh, acquisition of Roku by Comcast. I know that sounds far-fetched, but, but that was floated in the news. And then after that interview, we're going to give out Simon's home address, phone number, and social security number so you can open credit cards. Uh, and I can say that because I'm actually interviewing a deep fake of Simon now. No, we're none of that. <laughs> But I point this out because, Simon, identity is going to become more and more important, right? In this world where deep fakes are possible, where this, if I said this was a hologram of me, it's not so crazy to believe that that would be possible. I mean, maybe not at the seven investing now budget, but certainly at the, the Hollywood budget, you know, are you seeing actual Vin Diesel or pretend Vin Diesel? Given his acting range, I would guess actual Vin Diesel because a hologram would be better. Uh, but, Simon, are we going to move to much more serious uh, identification because the world is getting just sneakier and more evil. I hate to say it that way, but that's kind of where we're going. It, it, it kind of, you know, to frame the answer for this, you know, we just had a, a special report that we now have available on seveninvesting.com about healthcare. Dan, uh, Dana Abramovitz, our, our colleague, lead advisor here at Seven Investing, says that, you know, we're talking a lot about technology disrupting healthcare. But in reality, there's so much more to the healthcare system itself this $4 trillion web that we've sown in America that needs to be fixed before technology or before Google can even try to come up with a technological solution. It's the same thing with identity. We have created the original sin of the internet has been that we put it all on advertising. We said, hey, we want our Google products for free. We want Facebook for free. In exchange for that, we're just going to pile a whole bunch of information out there and it's going to be mined. And then we're going to give that out to advertisers and they're going to blast the, uh, the advertisements for hot tubs and guitars when you're in the, the bread and egg section of the grocery store. It's completely unrelated. We don't like this. We don't like talking about things with our spouse. And then all of a sudden we see a, an advertisement show up on our, on our web feed. It's, it's creepy. We don't like that. But if we fix the original problem, if we fix the problem of the internet, we say, hey, we're going to opt in and we're going to be familiar with what we're sharing and how it's being used. The first steps of that are already being taken. If we, if we knock this out of the park, and we figure out the technology and identity. I have a lot of faith that uh, targeted advertising can be done a lot more effectively than it is today. 
I think it's also worth noting just how valuable this is to Facebook and Google, because if it wasn't, there'd be a premium version of Facebook where you could spend X99 a month uh, and not see any ads or only see exactly what you wanted to see. The fact that that doesn't exist makes me believe that this is so lucrative that the price would be too high, that this isn't uh, you know Discovery Plus having a tier where you get some commercials and one where you get no commercials for $2 more. This is probably worth you know, more than $9.99 a month, whatever it is. So Simon, we're gonna revisit this. This is something we're gonna talk about a lot because I actually think identity and, and advertising are probably two of the biggest topics that we really haven't talked about all that much. And they're gonna come up much more often, but we are nearing the end of the month. And on the first of the month, our new picks come out. But next month in July, on the eighth of the month, something pretty impressive happens. I know, you need a calendar, you need an iWatch, it's hard to track. But Simon, <laughs> our pricing is changing. Why don't you explain that to our viewers here? What is going on? Seven, seven, 49, Dan, right? So easy numbers to remember. Seven <laughs> investing, seven picks a month, you know, seven, if you, seven times seven is 49. And that's the new price that we're going to have per month for new subscribers of seven investing, Dan. And, and this is for a lot of reasons. You know, we've added a lot of value since we launched last March. We now have seven advisors instead of just four. Uh, we built a, a really good looking website that's got a lot of IT functionality to it. Um, we we, we want to make sure that that, that that's in place and, and everyone is getting paid. I, I know you'd like to get a paycheck at the end of the month, but even I more do, than I that, do like that. That's one of the better parts of the month. Yes. I, um, I, I think that also that a lot of times when, when people who are unfamiliar with seven investing, were seeing that we were only $17 a month. It was kind of a turnoff because a lot of people were thinking we were kind of a, an entry level service. They're saying, Oh, $17 a month. You see, if you don't know anything about a service, it's $17 a month and a service that's $50 a month. People were inherently thinking that we were just kind of for starters we said, we want to make sure we're aligned more with the value that we're bringing out there. And so we're raising prices for a marketing perspective as well. But as you mentioned, anyone who signs up by July 7th. So what is that, Dan? A week and a half, two weeks from now. Yeah, it is very, very close. TikTok. TikTok, TikTok. If you sign up by the 7th, you're grandfathered in at $17 a month, as long as you remain an active subscriber. And so if you've ever thought about joining 7investing, now's the time to do it. Check us out. Uh, if nothing else, just for a month or two, where well, you can still lock in that great rate before we increase them on July the 7th. Yeah, and it's important to note, 7investing is a service for experienced investors, but it's also a service for newer investors. So we, we kind of do it all. I, I'm, I'm literally calling a new member on my ride home today because even with all the materials we had produced and, and, and we make our one of our new member calls available, we do a live new member call, we walk you through the service, we walk you through things like, setting up a brokerage, all of that we make very, very simple. And the person still had questions. And well, we're going to take that customer service. Now, do we want to, we're not going to call every person. That's obviously not feasible. But in this case, it made sense. So that's what we do. We're, we're going to be the service. That's whatever you need it to be. If you're experienced, you might just want to use our picks. If you want exposure to different spaces, that's there for you too. But if you're new to investing or you've only been investing in a 401k or ETFs or whatever it is, we're going to talk about that. We're going to do the introductory things. We're, we can answer your tough questions. We can answer your easy questions. So if you'd like to subscribe right now, you can lock in $17 a month or $170 a year forever, as long as you remain a, remain a subscriber. That is 7investing.com slash subscribe. We make our URLs really easy. 7investing.com slash subscribe. Simon Erickson, thank you for joining me on the program today. Uh, we will have you on next week, though it's kind of a weird week with the holiday next week. 
Um, right now, we are going to swing over to an interview I did with Anirban Mahante, where we did this at like 10 o'clock at night on the day it was announced, because we were both so excited to talk about it. We're going to talk about the rumor of Comcast. And Comcast started this rumor that they're interested in buying Roku or doing something with Viacom CBS. I will see you live back after that. So feel free to ask your questions. I'll take them after. Simon, thank you. Sam Bailey, if you want to roll the interview, that'd be great. I'm being joined. Uh, it's late night for me. It's about nine o'clock here in, uh, I was about to say West Palm Beach. I'm actually in Davenport, Florida, headed to Disney tomorrow. It is a normal time of day for Anirban Mahate. Anirban, we're here for sort of an emergency recording. This is going to be part of the Friday 7 Investing Now. But first, how are you? I'm great. You know, it's uh, 10 o'clock here, which is 9 p.m. for you. Um, fantastic. Uh, you, you know, I was having my coffee at the mall um, uh, or at, at a coffee shop, and I was actually just walking around. And then you said, okay, let's record. So I said, okay, I'm going to drive back home. Yeah, so we're doing a bit of a rush taping because a news story came out on CNBC uh, a little bit earlier this afternoon that said that Comcast was kicking the tires, basically. There's no confirmations on any of this, but they published it that Comcast was considering a bid for Roku. And it looks like they're thinking about making an offer to buy Roku. Roku has about a $50 billion market cap. Comcast has a $250 billion. The other thing that was talked about a little bit more, more vaguely was they're also looking at maybe a purchase, maybe a partnership with uh, CBS, CBS Viacom. We're gonna get to that in a second, but let's talk a little bit. So earlier today I taped and the, the dongle, you were a Mac person, so you understand that the the USB-C doesn't connect directly to anything. So you, I have them everywhere. And well, my dongle broke. So I had to use my laptop camera and the computer I travel with is a 2016, uh, you know, light MacBook. Like it's, it's not a great camera. So it wasn't great. So I drove to Best Buy and traffic here is tremendous. It took like half an hour, it's six miles away. I bought the only one that was under like $60 because Best Buy is, is, is slightly overpriced compared to, to Amazon. Not too bad, but it wasn't, it wasn't great. I could have got something much more robust uh, in terms of ports for, for what I paid, but fine, I got it. And then I got home and as, as we finished dinner, we, we pulled in, something had been rattling around in the trunk. Uh, so I went to the trunk to see what it was. It was a, it was a loose bottle. Um, and sitting next to it was another dongle. So I just went on this trip. I just spent $40. You can never have too many of them, but it was an absolute waste of time. So we are here. It is nighttime for me. It is daytime for you. We're recording. So let me just get your first thoughts here on Comcast buying Roku. I, I'm going to say it's terrible. I'll elaborate. It's not going to happen in my opinion. <laughs> um, but Anirvan, what were your thoughts when you heard that this could possibly theoretically maybe be an idea? You know, can I sidetrack and say that you should get a Apple M1 computer? Like I've got one, I've not set it up. Then your camera would rock. Uh, mine is sitting in the box and I haven't yet opened it, but you know, so that's here's my the thing. I, can't, I can't justify it. I have a 2016 laptop, a 2020 laptop and a 2000 <laughs> and a 2000 late 2020, maybe 2021 iMac. So to buy a fourth Mac within two years would be a little bit. I'm eagerly awaiting being able to do that. But uh, until one breaks, I, I already have at least one Mac too many. I have a 2013 MacBook Pro, which I'm sending back. and I'm going to get $610 for that, for an Apple trade-in. That I think wow. is a good deal. That is an absolute <laughs> so that's so, so, so I tell people to look at the Apple trade-in. Anyways, that's my Apple advertisement of the day. Okay, about this deal. 
I don't even know how this can get done, right? So uh, what Roku is 50 billion plus um, uh, still founder run, right? Um, if you want to buy this thing, <laughs> you have to pay a premium to the already expensive shares. Uh, the way you could do this is instead of actually buying it out, you could you could frame this as the merger of the 21st century streaming wars, and and you know you merge Comcast uh, with Roku, and, and maybe you know. Uh, <laughs> Each person gets uh, some number of shares of this combined company because it's a two hundred billion dollar company, and you have to buy this. You're probably looking at what seventy five billion dollars or something like that. Yeah, it would, I don't it, know how that happens. It would have to look like Time Warner Discovery, where you might get executives from both teams involved. But the really difficult part of this is Roku's benefit in the market is being content agnostic. They can have really hard negotiations with everybody and say, "Hey, look, we're treating everyone the same way." Whereas if they all of a sudden are part of Comcast and, and they're featuring Peacock, that's going to make a lot of people go, well, why don't I just get a, a, an Amazon device? Why would I care about being on this neutral player if it's no longer neutral? The other thing is culturally, you've heard me talk about this a lot, Comcast has inherently bad customer service. That comes from its deep-rooted tradition in being a cable company that hates you because they don't need... You're, they were a monopoly for a long time. They didn't need to take care of you. That I learned during the pandemic is really how it works at Universal Studios, which they own, which I always thought was well run. I thought it was well run because I'd never been there during a crisis. When you got there during a crisis, it was chaos. It was poorly managed. It was bad. So I have been going to events where Comcast has promised to fix customer service for over a decade. And it is not something they're capable of doing. So the last thing I'd want them to do is buy this product I feel really good about that I've never had a single issue with. And, it, and, and, and if I ever have to contact them, they answer. We're, we're working on uh, uh, you know, how you might form a Roku channel. And they have these amazing FAQs and, and data and help and people. I just culturally, I'd be terrified of this. If you, if you told me Apple was going to buy Roku, I still wouldn't like it. But at least uh, you know, culturally, the two products, you know, it would be like Apple buying Beats. It, it makes some sense. Yeah, so I think one way this may work, here's the may work scenario, right, that you basically run those two companies as independent and you you sort of silo out Comcast, is, uh, Comcast streaming from Comcast uh, networking, right? So the networking business is a separate business altogether um, or any business that provides basically some form of network connectivity, right? Whether it's like, you know, uh, on, on uh, Wi-Fi or whether it's on, you know, on the ground separate that out because those tend to be legacy style businesses. One way it might work is that if you've got a streaming channel that you want to put up maybe for free or as, as a promotion or something on, you know, as a special deal on Roku, you could, right? And you leave Roku otherwise to be an independent player. I, I mean, that might work. It's hard to see where the synergistic I, benefits are. I think you have that's to, one way. <laughs> I think you'd have to spin off all the NBC universal assets. So that's the broadcast network, that's Peacock Streaming, that's the movie studio, that's the theme parks. You spin that into a separate company with Roku. Again, very much the Time Warner Discovery model. I could see that being very appealing for Comcast. I can't see that being all that appealing for Roku because if you're Roku, you don't have the expense of producing television. You have the growing ad business. And I, I don't think it's out of the question that Roku at some point doesn't produce some, some television. Or I think they produce a little, but 
produce more, but I think they're going to pick their shots or work with the right partners or license things that are big, who knows, but they're not going to have that multi-billion dollar suck that you get when you're throwing things at a wall. And look, Comcast has the number two uh, intellectual property behind Disney, but it's sort of like if there was no Pepsi and you said Coke is number one and Royal Crown is the next best soda, they've got a few franchises. They have Fast and the Furious, uh, they have Jurassic Park. Both of those are kind of long in the tooth and, and you know they are rebootable. Transformers has struggled. Uh, they couldn't really get the monster movies off the ground. They were supposed to have a whole universal monster verse. Tom Cruise killed that with the, with the mummy. Um, you know, the theme parks are very strong and getting stronger here in Florida where they are working on another gate, but they're not Disney. And even with another gate, that might be a two day park as opposed to right now you could really get through it in one. So let's move on to the second thing being talked about here. And, and let, me, let me set the table here. So Comcast has Peacock. Peacock has under 10 million paying subscribers. That's kind of a disaster given the level of money. Uh, just, just to throw one thing out, they're paying WWE a billion dollars over five years for rights to WWE's archive content and pay-per-views. That should have right there alone added them a million plus paying subscribers in, in the US. The fact that people were paying more money, $9.99 a month for WWE Network and didn't follow it over to, para, to, to, to Peacock for half the money, $4.99, they're also having the same problem Time Warner's having. Whereas if you're a Comcast customer, you get Peacock. You get like the paid level of Peacock as part of your subscription. A lot of people just aren't turning it on. And I have to say, when I had Comcast up until like two weeks ago, I think I turned it on because I wanted to watch Saturday Night Live. And then I realized I could watch Saturday Night Live on Hulu uh, when it didn't record on my DVR. And then I never went to it again. Uh, and again, I'm a wrestling fan who paid for WWE Network. So the idea here is that there would be some sort of content merger with what CBS Viacom is doing. So that might not be a partnership, that might not be an ownership situation, that might be like a Hulu situation where they, we have Peacock here, we have Paramount Plus here, uh, and we have Pika Parrot or whatever it is that comes out of it together that has the best of both of these. And Anirban, I'd like your thoughts on this before I launch into a, a raging tirade that may involve me throwing things. You know, I'll just abstract out a little bit. And what, the way I think about this is, I think, so I'm, the, I'm, I'm a believer that, you know, content IP is all about old content IP. Nobody has IP on new content. In other words, I just don't think, so for example, yes, Disney makes good movies and good things, but doesn't necessarily mean that others can't because, well, it's all about basically putting together people, right? So I think, so, the, so there's a back catalog problem which is separate from fresh content problem. I think anyone who throws enough money can make good content, right? Now the problem, then if, 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 if that's the question, okay, well, then, you know, of course, like, you know, people like Disney have like a dedicated team, they've got, an, they've got a, you know, animation team. So yes, those are advantages, but it's not without it with, uh, outside the realm of making good films or good content. Let's put that aside. So it's basically a money problem. There are a few people who have got a back catalog that is huge, right? So the back catalog is huge for Disney, which um, has got, you know, the Fox's content and, you know, the Hulu content and things like that. And then there's back catalog that, uh, that smartly Netflix has built up, right? Back catalog is useful when you get new subscribers, right? Or enter new territories, right? Because having a back catalog basically is useful there. Then you have all these other players who've got niche content 
and they can't really figure out what to do with them. So I think really mergers for, for these, you know, tiny minuscule content owners and content producers does make sense in that, in that context, right? I mean, and then there's a third leg of players, I guess, you know, there's the other in the media scene is the big players who, for whom a couple of billion is nothing, right? So it's like the Amazon Prime. Uh, or it's like the um, Apple TV, or it's like whoever, you know, who has got money to basically throw where it is not their primary strategy, it's their secondary strategy. So if it's their secondary strategy, then you've got all these other players who can throw content. So I think for for the, I guess, the fringe players, um, consolidation of some form makes sense. Although again, we also know that consolidation brings with its own challenges, right? You know, you have to you know consolidate the the teams, the you know, and and if you go back to my original point that nobody has IP, at least these smaller players have IP on content, then what do you really achieve from consolidation, right? The only thing you can achieve from consolidation is either firepower in terms of money, or synergy in terms of getting rid of people and basically creating a more streamlined. Um, uh, streamlined, you know, production house, so to say, right? So uh, I, I don't know, like, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting situation how the streaming landscape is. If you're Netflix, some of these smaller shows that play to demographics in certain parts of the world, because you have this algorithm and you know that, that this show is the reason 2 million people stay members, that works when you're that big. But the reality is in the content world, 10 old minor hits don't equal one blockbuster. So the problem you have is you're combining these two companies where Comcast does have some franchises. CBS Viacom really just has Star Trek, which is a significantly less value than Star Wars. The movies weren't as big, the shows weren't as big. Uh, they have a bunch of Star Wars TV shows. None of them move the needle. They move the needle closer to like the, the Bad Batch cartoon that's on Disney Plus now, more so than they do like The Mandalorian. So you're not really adding much. And, and I look and I'd say, okay, I'm not subscribing to Peacock. I'm not subscribing to Paramount. Uh, if they were both together and they cost the same amount of money, would I subscribe? And the answer is probably no. Now, might there be things that they release that I decide I want to watch and I join for a month? I think that's true of any streaming network. But I don't think you're getting something like, look, when you put together Discovery and Time Warner, it's hard to figure out how that all works together, but at least it's all different niches. CNN is probably speaking to a really different customer than the uh, Magnolia Network or, or, or the Cooking Channel. Uh, here, this is speaking to me to the same audience that's like consuming Pluto, which is free. Like, it's like, great, there's Manimal reruns. Welcome back, Cotter is on. Like, I don't know what the Australian equivalent to that is, uh, but these are not shows a lot of people are clamoring to watch now. So. I, I, look, I think there are deals out there. If I, if, I was, if I was Comcast, I'd buy WWE. Why are you paying a company between your two different deals with them, you know, something like $500 million a year when you could probably buy them for six or seven billion total uh, and, and you'd actually make a significant amount of money on that deal. So, it, so, it, so go ahead. So the, so the later parts answer might be it's a financial, probably a financial question, right? I mean, do they have the six billion or ten billion or whatever it takes to acquire something, right? And and I think all of these acquisitions really, I mean, I think the question of like these smaller players with niche content, 
I think they're getting together is not at all about their existing library. Yes, their existing library becomes bigger, a better, slightly. It's only a delta. It really is, I think, the question that two small players cannot independently produce enough good content to even have a shot at living uh, the next, you know, next five years, right? So if you put together five of these small players together, they all together produce now some content they actually probably have a shot of living the next five years. I think that's probably the So the mergers to me, in my mind, seem uh, like a requirement for them to survive or for a lot of these channels to basically disappear because otherwise they're just lost leaders, right? I mean, as you said, you're not going to sign up to watch that one Star Trek movie that maybe is a hit or may not be a hit, right? But if five of these guys produce something that appeals to a larger base of customers and therefore some number of people sign up. Uh, you know, maybe that's a possibility. It's from a rough the, game. From the movie business, you'd have to follow a very Disney-like strategy. So I've written about this many times, but if Disney puts out 12 films a year, only like two or three of them have a chance of failing. Usually there's one that's original. There's maybe one riskier Pixar movie that that's not, an, you know, it's going to be a hit, but it's not going to necessarily be a billion dollar movie. And there might be one like adaptation of, of you know, old content, a live action Aristocats or, or who knows what. The reality is other than, than Solo, which kind of bombed because it was a bad idea as a Star Wars movie, most things they put out are familiar. There's an audience, people want to see them. The question when a Marvel movie comes out isn't, will it make a billion dollars? Is it, it's, will it get to $2 billion? Those numbers may not look like the same in the new world. So the only way this works for, let's say Comcast and, and, and CBS Viacom pair up, the only way it works is if they take an ax to their, to their release schedules. And basically, if you're Comcast now, you're putting out nine or 10 movies a year that you don't know, you're just throwing it at the wall. If you're Paramount, you're not releasing as many movies, but you only have one or two movies a year that are in franchises that, that you know, are definitely going to be hits or have a reasonable chance at it. So if this comes with really huge cuts and they try to make this a best of the best studio and a best of the best streaming service, uh, maybe there's a chance. These, these probably are the two next players that are available. I just don't see it mattering that much. I, I don't see that the price you'd pay for CBS Viacom and, and our, 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 our good friend, uh, Alan Sokoloff said, yeah, but think about all the sports rights they'd have. Well, there's no way they're gonna allow one company to own two US networks. So something's getting sold off there if there was to be a purchase. That's why I always think it would be a streaming partnership. Go ahead, Honor, yeah, I was talking yeah, about so the, No, no, the one thing I was thinking about is like, if you think about the, all the big, so there's, you know, if basically I've got Disney and Netflix at one level, then we've got sort of the big tech players at another level. And then we've got all these other small players at sort of the third, you know, if you think of it in a tiered way, um, the most at risk is sort of the third tier, right? Because, you know, but, but the third tier, uh, and I'm not going to mean third tier is a bad, like these are, you know, they have got smaller number of subscribers and they've got more niche plays and things like that. But if you think about, so just, just think about Apple TV. Apple TV does not actually make their own content, right? They basically ask somebody like Paramount Films to make content for them. Actually, if you have the smaller niche players bundle up together and say, okay, we are the production house <laughs> and now we are three, they probably have more clout in terms of how much they can get for the content that they make for others, right? And they could still use the third party distribution. So, I mean, there is a business model out there for not to be a streaming player, 
but to be a content producer and then pitch your content basically to the highest bidder. And, and that's a business model that might actually work. All of these companies are intertwined from a production point of view. A, a, a CBS produced show could be sold to Netflix. It could be sold to ABC. Like, like if, yeah. now, if you're CBS and you, you know, you're working with a, a brand name creator and you sell to ABC, that show better be successful because they're not going to get the back end profits at the network. So they're not going to keep it on the air for five years to get that syndication money. But yeah, I, I think there's some production advantages, but the reality is, is most of that is name brand driven. And we're seeing Netflix and Apple and other places buy up a lot of those name brands. Uh, and, and look, I, I think it's leading to shows that people praise that aren't very good uh, because there's a reason networks can overdo it with notes, but there's a reason you have executives not letting the creative people indulge every fantasy. It leads to all these Ryan Murphy shows that, that you know, are, are very pretty and whatnot, but are pretty much unwatchable. Uh, it leads to Bridgerton. And I know a lot of people loved that show, but it's super, super self-indulgent. Um, you know, I'm gonna get hate mail now. Uh, <laughs> take over before I, I insult something else. You know, you know what, what I was gonna say is that there was a, you know, I've been a big, big streaming supporter. Like I love streaming because it just makes watching so much more efficient, especially for people outside of the States, right? I mean, it just, it has expanded the amount of content I can actually access. And, and access like legally and access like you know, like my own, own, you know, instead of trying to download some pirated copy from somewhere on BitTorrent, you can actually watch things legally and at your own convenience. This is like, it's great. Now I've got a different problem though. The problem I've got is I've got either too much content and therefore I can't discover things. Like, you know, I, you know, regularly the family would sit together, okay, what should we watch? And we really don't know what to watch because like, okay, should we watch that? Ah, you know, it appeals to someone, doesn't appeal to someone. Um, so there's, there's this there's a discovery issue. There's also overabundance. Like, you know, as you said, there's so many, there's the number of content that Netflix pushes out. is like insane. <laughs> there's no way everybody can watch that thing. And, and it, in, 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 I used to regularly find things to watch on Netflix. Now I have a hard time actually finding things to watch on Netflix because it's like, okay, there's, this, this, this has been released, but really, do I know anything about these things? Do I really want to put my time into it? So right now, we are watching Stranger Things. Good, we had not watched it before. Is there something to watch now for us, right? Uh, so, it, it, so, it, yeah. It's a big problem, and, and, we'll, and we'll close on this. I would argue that Apple, and for the most part, Amazon, are producing content for the prestige of it. Uh, other than The Boys, which is broken through as, as maybe a legitimate hit, that they, they don't share any numbers, but it certainly has that buzz. Something like The Morning Show, I'd be shocked if a million people watched it. And that was true for, for all the data on the early days of, of many of these prestige shows. It's about getting the interviews, getting the attention, getting the... So that's a great model if you're a celebrity who's getting cast in these shows. Uh, you know, look, Netflix has been really good for debatable superstars to get big paydays to be in movies that do well by Netflix metrics, but probably wouldn't have been, you know, box office hits. If you're Ryan Reynolds, Netflix is the best thing that ever happened to you because you're no longer dependent on box office. And to say he's hit or miss at the box office is putting it really, really kindly. So there's probably 50 shows I'd enjoy that I'll never turn on because discovery is really hard. And I actually think that's why these sort of mashups, they only work if they really, really become hit factories. Like we're moving to a world where if I can watch a Star Wars show every week, am I really gonna watch an unbranded space show that I might like? Takes an awful lot to, to get me to do that these days. I agree. I agree.
I've been with Anirban Mahante. I have no idea how long this has gone. So if it's not like, you know, one thirty in the afternoon and you're watching this on <laughs> 7 Investing Now on Friday, I apologize. Uh, but Anirban, thank you for doing this at the last minute. Uh, we will see you. We're doing a couple of things next week. We're going to tape a, a segment for one of the Monday or Wednesday show. And then for Friday, July 2nd, because I'm going to be traveling. I'm going to be uh, on, on, on board the freedom of the seas headed towards the Bahamas. Uh, we are going to record a show on how to achieve financial freedom. It's going to be the 4th of July coming up. Uh, you know, it's really, we're going to look at all the things you need to do. And I don't mean to retire. I don't mean to put your feet up. That might be a goal for some people. That's not my goal. I think of financial freedom is, oh, hey, I don't worry about money unless I'm like buying a house or like something huge breaks. Like, like to me, getting to that point in my life where like if the washing machine broke, it's not the end of the world. That <laughs> is an amazing weight off your shoulders. So it's different things for different people. Anurban, thank you for doing this. We will see you, you. on next week's programming. I am back live. Thank you for sticking around. Sam Bailey, we're going to take uh, Cole Barkia's question about uh, TV manufacturers. Uh, so the, the next to last one there. Could Roku acquire any TV manufacturers, expand their footprint uh, instead of merging with the content owner? I They could, but I don't think they're going to. I think Roku is only going to be acquired if it is something massive. If, if, if Comcast comes in and offers them 100% premium, that could happen. I don't expect this to happen. I think Comcast is throwing it out there. A lot of the benefit of Roku is being independent. And if all of a sudden they own like Samsung's TV division, I don't know that LG or Sony or anyone else is going to want to talk to them. Uh, we will close out uh, with uh, a comment from Daniel Delgado. We'll also say thank you uh, to all the other people who commented and questioned. Uh, but Sam, if you want to put up the question about uh, saying I'm right about Comcast, I always like to stick a little dagger into Comcast there. Daniel, you are absolutely right about Comcast. Comcast has never cared about customer service. So many services uh, that have better value out there to subscribe to. I would like to see Comcast break up. I think NBC Universal and Universal Studios, the theme parks, should be a separate business from this old line cable company. I think they might be able to fix customer service if that was to happen, uh, but we are running out of time. I appreciate so many of you watching. Sam Bailey, if we want to hit our finisher, uh, you can share the graphic there. Which company should Comcast buy? 16.7% uh, said Viacom CBS. 34.8% said Roku. 14.6% said WWE. 33.9% said none of the above. Um, I don't think they should buy Roku. I think Roku is immediately worth less if Comcast owns it. So I think that's a mistake. I do think they should buy WWE. I think there's going to be an arms race uh, where Comcast, Fox, and maybe even Disney uh, make bids for WWE, uh, but that is just a guess, and I am wrong all the time at guessing on acquisitions. We're actually going to have a lot of cool content coming out about acquisitions, so I appreciate everyone putting up with the bad lighting. Uh, if anyone has any suggestions for a good travel light so I could look less dark and less red, uh, you can hit me up at, at worstideas7 on social media. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us in general, that is uh, at uh, info at seveninvesting.com. Thank you for sharing that, Sam. Info at seveninvesting.com is where you ask us questions about your membership, if you're thinking about joining, if you have a technical problem, something you want us to talk about. And if you want to interact with us broadly on social media, that is, of course, at seveninvesting. I'd love to thank uh, Simon Erickson, Anirban Mahante, and Sam Bailey. We will see you again on Monday. Thanks for watching.
A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.